Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Vlakis, and I'm an expert certified fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, a multiple award-winning virtual fertility and pregnancy nutrition clinic serving thousands from around the world, and of course, the host of this pod, Fertility Friendly Food. This podcast is dedicated to all things health and nutrition in the world of fertility, reproductive health, and pregnancy. Each week, I bring you practical snack-sized episodes to help improve your lifestyle on your trying-to-conceive journey, alongside guest expert interviews to help inspire you to learn and grow whilst you grow your family. Welcome everyone to Endometriosis Awareness Month mini-series on fertility-friendly food. As you all might know by now, endometriosis is a common chronic inflammatory condition that affects more than just reproductive organs and fertility, but so many other aspects of our lives. And as someone who lives with endometriosis myself and a great number of the clients that I work with at The Dietologist, I like to dedicate all of the podcast episodes in March to endometriosis to help shed more light and educate you all about this disease that affects one in nine people that are born with a uterus and is continually underfunded and under-researched despite the huge impact it's having on the lives of Australians and people all over the world. So A quick intro into what you can expect from this mini-series with these weekly episodes all throughout March. So today's episode is about the gut microbiome and endometriosis. Next week, we will be discussing the low FODMAP diet for endometriosis with our incredible team dietitian, Kaylee Slater. The next week, we'll be talking about dealing with endo belly and my top bloating hacks. Following week, we will be discussing SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and endometriosis with a special guest gut health dietitian, Crystal Austin, APD. And finally, for the last week of March, because yes, there are five Thursdays in March, I will be sharing a bit about my endometriosis journey 10 years on from my very first symptoms and approaching four years after diagnosis. So before we get into today's episode, this episode is proudly brought to you by our Nourishing Gut Health for Endometriosis Masterclass, which I will be delivering to you live on March 23rd at 7pm Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time or Sydney Melbourne Time. It's available all around the world though, just use the time zone converter on the link in the show notes, which I'll share with you in a sec. So if you want to come and join me to learn the relationship between endometriosis and gut health, including the gut microbiome from the latest research, understand how to tackle common and bothersome gut concerns with endo, including bloating, constipation, diarrhea, and nausea with super practical tips you can take away and implement. We have tickets on sale now. The link is in our show notes. And this includes a ticket to the live event on the Thursday, March 23rd. And of course, 90 days access to the recording. If you can't make it or you'd like to re-watch it, plus a bonus downloadable workbook summarizing the key points from the masterclass. 
Tickets are just $75 Australian dollars and $10 will be donated to the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia who raise awareness for pelvic pain conditions like endometriosis amongst adolescents to reduce their time to diagnosis because I don't know about you, but I seriously wish there was more information about periods and endo and adeno and PCOS when I was a whole lot younger. So let's reduce the time to diagnosis for this next generation. Just before we get into today's episode, we are going to be answering a question submitted by you, our listeners and our community to the podcast for me to answer. If you would like to drop us a question, you can head to the link in the show notes. It's a 30 second quick form, drop us your question. You can leave it anonymously if you wish, but if you wish to be informed that your question has been answered, then leave us your email address and we'll send you the episode link. So today's question is about ovulation. So delayed ovulation, for example, I have a positive ovulation test on day 48 and day 53. Does ovulating this late impact your ability to conceive or successful implantation, for example, impacting egg quality? Great question. One of the most common types of female factor related fertility concerns are ovulatory in nature, either delayed or absent ovulation. Now, obviously, from a statistical perspective, if we think about 12 months of the year and somebody having a 28-day cycle, they're going to have 12 to 13 opportunities to ovulate and to potentially conceive. And so if you're getting a 53-day ovulation, then it's taking another couple of weeks for your cycle to come. You've got in excess a 60 to 70-day menstrual cycle from top to tail there, which obviously is going to drop your number of chances per year from 12 to 13 to maybe five or six, which is going to then create a longer time to conceive as a result in some circumstances. Now, this is not to say that delayed ovulation means it's impossible for the sperm to find the egg and for conception to occur. It can absolutely still occur and you shouldn't use irregular or absent ovulation as your contraception if you're trying to avoid pregnancy. But certainly we do know that the conditions in which this ovulation dysfunction is occurring, predominantly the most common ones being PCOS, uh, hypothyroidism, and also hypothalamic amenorrhea. Those are the predominant three major causes that we see. There's lots of other causes of irregular ovulation. The hormonal profiles associated with those typically is what is going to be contributing to your hormonal profile, your egg quality, and so on and so forth. So say, for example, let's just take PCOS, for example. Um, So in PCOS, we have high levels of circulating androgens. We may have lower levels of progesterone if we're not ovulating properly every month. And alternatively, we can have some inflammation, which may affect the egg quality, and we may get some follicle development issues. So maybe the, the follicle not quite maturing, for example, in some cases. And so all those things may affect fertility. Now, whether it will affect implantation as well, well, potentially, because if we're not ovulating properly, then we may not be having enough progesterone being produced. If we don't have enough progesterone being produced, then the embryo, once it's nestled into the uterine lining, it's not going to be supported into early gestation. You can apply that kind of thinking to many other different contexts in hypothalamic amenorrhea and and hypothyroidism. So my biggest question to you is, why? Why are you ovulating this late? You need to work out why. So head to your GP as a starting point, or if you've got a fertility specialist and start working out why, because that is going to be your bigger answer as to your chances of conceiving rather than the lateness per se, because you're just getting fewer chances and the why is going to give you a lot more answers. Anyway, 
I could talk about that for the next half an hour. So hopefully that answers your question, gets you thinking and gives you a next step. All right, into today's episode, all about the gut microbiome and its relationship to endometriosis. But before we get right into it, I know I've said this six times in this episode already, but I want to give some definitions, okay? It's really important. We hear gut microbiome a lot, but what does it actually mean? What does all this terminology, this gut health jargon, what does it all mean? So here are the differences between all these keywords. The gut microbiota. Now, these are the trillions of microorganisms that live in your intestinal tract. Whilst there are some microbes that are found in the small intestine, the vast majority of these are concentrated in the large intestine of the bowel. These microorganisms, which are mostly bacteria, play a critical role in the way that we digest food, absorb nutrients, and they also make nutrients too, namely vitamin B12 and vitamin K. So the gut microbiota, we're talking about the actual physical cells that are living in the gut. And you're probably hearing more and more research about the role of the gut microbiota in mental health, in diabetes, in weight, in psychological presentations, in all sorts of other conditions and their relationships with uh, IBS and, and gut symptoms and so on. And the last 10 or so years when I first started studying microbiology has been a huge explosion in the gut microbe space in terms of research and findings and so on, which is awesome, awesome to see. Now, the gut microbiome, very slight difference in the name, but really important to note. So the gut microbiome refers to the collection of genetic material that's found in these microorganisms. The gut microbiome is so unique to us individually. In fact, it is considered as individual as our fingerprint. Many things can influence our gut microbiome, our diet being one of the largest, sleep, exercise, owning a pet, medication use, for example, current or past use of antibiotics is just one example, the use of supplements, genetics, and honestly, so, so much more, our mood, our mental health, endless amounts of things influence our gut microbiome. Let's do a few more common gut health terms whilst we're at it, just so we have these in our back pocket when we are chatting today and for the rest of our series as we're talking quite a bit about gut health this March. So prebiotics. Prebiotics are a type of dietary fiber that help nourish and feed the favorable gut microbiota by selectively feeding them. Some key examples of prebiotic rich Foods include Jerusalem artichoke, often called inulin or chicory root sometimes too, garlic, onion, leek, pistachios, cashews, legumes and beans, and in fact, breast milk too is a rich source of prebiotic fiber for all those mamas out there. Documented benefits of prebiotics are to restore the intestinal bacterial balance enhance the uptake of and the bioavailability of key nutrients and making them more absorbable to the body and even reduce the risk of some chronic conditions. So pretty special job these prebiotic fibers have. And the way that I like to think about it is the fertilizer in the soil and the actual seeds in the soil are your probiotics. So the the fertilizer helps nurture the seed, right, to help it grow. So prebiotics are kind of the food to the probiotics. So probiotics are the live microorganisms that we introduce through our diet and or supplements in the hopes of introducing more beneficial microbes to the bowel in hopes of creating a clinical outcome. So we're trying to tackle a symptom typically like reducing diarrhea or bloating or sometimes for general health too. Although this is not necessarily indicated, there's not much benefit to just taking a probiotic just because. 
Naturally, you can find probiotics in food products such as yogurt, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, and other fermented foods too. Synbiotics, which is the new gut health jargon on the block, synbiotics are basically a combination of pre and probiotics in the one spot. So typically it's a supplement. It is understood by pairing these up, perhaps there is an enhanced effect by providing both the fertilizer and the seeds, so fuel to the microbes and the microbes themselves in the one place, which is proposed to help with probiotic uptake and survival to the gastrointestinal tract. Okay. Whilst we're at all this definition chat, I think it's really important when we're talking about gut health that we actually define the signs of a healthy gut because what is it? What are we aiming for, right? If all of our gut microbiomes are as unique as our fingerprint, then what are we shooting for? It's actually really hard to define what the signs are of a healthy gut because it is going to be very individual to us based on our genetics, environment, habits, and so much more. And each of our normal is going to be quite different, but there's certainly a few things to be aware of that we should be aiming for. So the first one is regular and pain-free bowel movements, no less than every second day and no more than three times per day. That kind of once to twice a day, you know, maybe you skip a day here and there or every second day, that's the correct amount of frequency for a bowel motion to, for the body to eliminate wastes. Bowel motions should in general feel complete and should not be painful or cause any bleeding. We should not see any blood or mucus in the stool. They should be formed stools uh, like a sausage-like or if you really want to, you can Google the Bristol stool chart and look for type 3 and type 4 stools. Now, it is normal and it's a sign of normal gut function to experience occasional bloating. If you eat some more food or you eat some windier type of foods like beans, for example, or cabbage, for example, it's pretty normal to experience bloating. You're not going to wake up and end the day with the same profile of your, in, your gut because there's actually food volume and fluid and the, the work of the gut microbes actually fermenting and producing gas, which by the way, Gas production is also normal and a sign of a healthy gut. And passing wind or farting is also normal. In fact, up to 1.8 litres of gas can be produced naturally each day by the large intestines. Now pour that into a, a bottle and see how much that is. And that is how much gas could be flying around in your bowels and trying to escape. Some changes to your bowel motions around your period is quite common and quite normal in quotation marks, although more pronounced with endometriosis due to prostaglandins. And if you want to learn more about bowel changes on your period, check out the episode about period poops from season one. I'll leave it linked in the show notes for you. Now, red flags for gut function. All right. Red flags for gut function include regular abdominal pain, especially after eating, Significant and painful and regular bloating, so tender to the touch, extreme distension, it's frequent and it's impacting your function. Irregular bowel opening patterns that are perhaps incomplete, painful, or the consistency of the stool output is problematic. So if it looks like rabbit droppings, it's probably too dry. If it's coming out too quickly and it's quite loose, then it's probably a bit too loose as well. Any kind of blood or mucus in your stool is a red flag and definitely worth investigating with your doctor. Digestive concerns that are accompanied by unexplained weight loss. This is a huge red flag. If you are losing weight and you've got issues with your bowel function, straight to the doctor. Really important. 
nutrient deficiencies plus gut concerns. This can be a red flag too because it may be a sign of malabsorption or your body's not able to have enough time with the food because things are moving too quickly to absorb. So things like iron, B12 and vitamin D deficiencies. There are many causes, however, Digestive diseases like celiac disease or Crohn's or inflammatory bowel disease can significantly impact micronutrient absorption. Bowel concerns that are impacting your work, social life, mental health and interfering with daily activities. Usually that's a sign that the gut health needs some attention. So please seek medical attention for any of the above or anything else that doesn't seem quite right to you. All right. The definitions are behind us now. Let's get into the crux of the episode of the gut microbiome and endometriosis. Now, you might be wondering why I'm talking so much about gut health. Well, some research shows that up to 85% of those with endometriosis reported a digestive complaint in the past year. That is a lot of unhappy Tums endo warriors. Research conducted in 2020, so pretty recent stuff, has found there is an association between certain types of bacteria at various microbiome sites, including the gut, in those with endometriosis that are similar amongst us, like as in other people with endometriosis, but are distinctly different to those without endometriosis. For those particularly interested in what types of groups of bacteria, these are the proteobacteriae, the enterobacteriaceus, and streptococcus and E. coli or Escherichia coli. Wow, that's a throwback to my microbiology days pronouncing those names, isn't it? (laughs) The directionality of this relationship is suspected to be a two-way street. That is, the fact that someone has endometriosis must alter the microbiomes perhaps via hormonal pathways, dietary changes, and other factors, for example, medications. And the fact that the microbiome is different may be a potential part of the pathophysiology or the cause of endometriosis, perhaps via the immune system, because the gut is the biggest site of immune cells in the body. With the gut microbiome being such an important frontier for protecting our body for threats to our immune system, and endometriosis is understood to be somewhat of immune system dysfunction because why is the body allowing you know, random cells, endometrial-like cells, to grow in places where it shouldn't? The, the immune system has failed to surveillance that as an issue and, and mount a response to that, right? So it must be quite a sophisticated mechanism to actually suppress the immune system selectively for that and to allow the endometriosis to grow. Now, this is all theoretical. There's no real proof. It's all just hypothesizing, as scientists love to do. Since then, though, additional journal articles have been published regarding the relationship between the microbiome and endometriosis and looking at other sites in the body because the microbiome is more than just the gut. We have a vaginal microbiome, there's a breast milk microbiome, there's a microbiome in your eye, there's skin microbiome. You know, there's lots of different sites where microbes live, right? So interestingly, bacterial vaginosis or BV, which is a common gynecological condition describing a general imbalance of the microbes in the vaginal canal contributing to a commonly reported fishy odor as the main symptom, although you can sometimes be completely asymptomatic. This is usually diagnosed with a vaginal swab with your GP or gynecologist. That BV has been associated with endometriosis and the presence of fewer lactobacillus species in the reproductive tract, which have a critical role in maintaining the pH of the vagina to prevent pathogens colonizing. So the lactobacillus actually create acid that drops the pH to a more acidic range 
And that acidic environment then is helping to prevent bad bacteria, things that are going to cause issues and infections from grabbing hold. So if we don't have enough lactobacillus, it means that the body is more likely to have an imbalance and more likely for these pathogens to get in due to the knock-on effects to the pH and so on. Interestingly, the presence of bacterial vaginosis is also associated with higher rates of infertility too. And so the vaginal microbiome and the uterine microbiome is a new frontier for particularly implantation optimization, which is something that we do a lot of here at the Dietologist. I talk about it in our Enhancing Implantation Masterclass. And I've talked about it numerous times on our blog, on, on Instagram, and I'm sure I have a previous podcast episode on it as well, but it is a fascinating area of research. Additional research has shown that perhaps this distinct difference in the gut and other microbiome sites in those with endometriosis may not only contribute to altered immune function, but perhaps contribute to the production of more inflammation via pro-inflammatory cytokines and may disrupt normal immune surveillance, which may also be part of the potential mechanism for which endometriosis continues to exist and grow and then regrow. Fascinatingly, the gut microbiome also integrates into a common hormonal profile that we see with endometriosis too. Commonly in people with endometriosis, although not universally true, but a lot of the times, we do see higher circulating levels of estrogen. To learn more about estrogen endometriosis, check out last season's episode in the mini series. I'll leave it linked in the show notes for you so you can get up to speed. And this too becomes relevant as we know that the gut microbiome and specific bacteria and their enzymes can affect the way our body processes estrogen too, which may further be relevant to the endometriosis gut microbiome linkage story. So fascinating. I know, scientists everywhere nerding out. (laughs) I hope you're nerding out with me too. So undeniably in recent years, we are beginning to understand more and more there is a connection between endometriosis and the gut microbiome. And whether this is a new frontier to diagnose, treat or manage the disease, we're not quite sure yet. We're not quite there yet, but I think it's so fascinating and I feel like it integrates in so well into the various understandings and complexities of endometriosis that we know to date. Now, the biggest question I get is, how do we know? Like, here's the the really tricky thing about the gut microbiome, assessing it and so on, is um, stool or poo testing and other gut microbiome assessment methods that are commonly being used in private clinics to identify dysbiosis. Now, your doctor can usually run some stool tests to identify for things like um, inflammation, using calprotectin, for example. They may look at um, parasite. They may look at um, different types of enzymes, but these are very highly specific things. They're not going to give you a gut microbiome profile if you went to your GP and, and did a stool sample, for example. So a lot of private clinics, private clinicians, integrative doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, some dietitians often offer these gut microbiome assessment tests to try to identify any dysbioses. And at the end of the day, these studies that are looking at the the groups of bacteria that I mentioned earlier are using the latest technologies that are probably more advanced in some cases than what we have access to retail to determine these overarching differences and to show trends and associations. And so we can certainly borrow these methods and apply them. But 
I just want to make a caveat because these tests are expensive. They're usually 600 bucks or more. And the generalizability of these results is super challenging. And I really want you to be super informed before you go ahead and spend some money on this kind of testing in hopes of finding an answer. Because I know desperation can be so high when you have endo to find some kind of answer to help you. And uh, that does mean you're more vulnerable to being taken advantage of. So let's discuss. Number one, what is being measured when we do these types of tests is your poo. Now, it's a massive assumption to make that what your body is literally excreting as waste is a great representation of what is in your large intestine or your bowel. Perhaps it is more of what it wants to get rid of or less, or perhaps many bacteria die as soon as they come into contact with the air or may die off in number due to the conditions that do not represent the bowel. So there's, you know, a whole bunch of bacteria that do not like air. They, they prefer to exist as uh, without uh, oxygen. There's not much oxygen in the bowel. So anaerobes or selective anaerobes or complete anaerobes or obligate anaerobes. There's, there's lots of different types of those bacteria. So potentially they're dying even before they're in the poo cup for you to test. Now, everybody is working on this limitation, so it's kind of standardized across the board, but I think it's a really important thing to be aware of. Unlike doing a vaginal swab or a skin swab where you are getting a swab and doing a direct, you know, representation of what's at the site, this is a proxy kind of assumption that the poo is representing the gut microbiome. The second point is that the uniqueness of each of our gut microbiomes is such that they are as unique as a fingerprint and there is no predetermined healthy fingerprint or standard fingerprint or reference fingerprint. Otherwise, we would all be unlocking our phones with that for years now. I thought I would throw that one in there. I thought it was funny. (laughs) And thus, when these tests are conducted, they are comparing to a healthy gut microbiome profile. And I'm using my little bunny ears quotation marks here or a group where they've averaged everything out. Now, this may create misleading results of thinking your gut microbiome profile is suboptimal, but remember, it is uniquely yours. Undeniably, there are a number of bacterial species and strains that when in very high or low numbers is associated with disease or poor health. That may be helpful to know too, but if we don't have a great reference range, it's hard to then be super confident about your treatment from there. And number three, honestly, between me, you and the fence post, I have personally found that the outcomes of these tests rarely drastically change the treatment plan, which typically is going to be the general principles that we say to support digestive and gut health of improve your dietary fiber, improve your plant variety, boost your antioxidant intake. And perhaps it may give us more insight into very specific probiotic protocols to try perhaps for those who desire that level of detail and feel really motivated by having that information in front of them, it's potentially worthwhile. But I'm not sure we are currently at the stage with where technology is at the moment, where this is universally worthwhile for everybody. So really quick, how can you optimize your gut microbiome, you may ask? Here are some very quick tips that I will be discussing in much more depth in our upcoming live Nourishing Your Gut Health with Endometriosis Masterclass. Don't forget, get your link in the show notes. Just quickly though, focus on increasing the variety of plant foods. That's fruits, veg, nuts, seeds, legumes and beans, whole grains, herbs and spices. They all count. 30 or more different plant varieties are associated with more diverse and therefore healthier gut microbiomes. 
My second tip is to eat sufficient plant foods and dietary fiber. This is literal fuel for those microbes. And in return, they're going to give you back some gas, yes, but also energy, healthy and regular bowel motions, and even some micronutrients like vitamin K and vitamin B12. So the aim here is for another 30 grams of dietary fiber per day. 30 is a magic number. 30 or more plant types, 30 grams of fiber. Water, hydration, really important. Keeps the bowels working regularly, keeps things moving, and is a critical partner to increasing your fiber intake. Important to go slowly on that front and not go from a very low fiber diet to a very high fiber diet. Don't overlook things like sleep, exercise, and your mental health. Get out into nature where you can. All these things influence our gut health too. And P.S. for all the lovely pet owners, dog and cat owners, pet ownership may also contribute to a more diverse gut microbiome too. So your furry friend is doing you a favor there too. So to wrap up, there is new research emerging highlighting that those with endometriosis have their own unique gut microbiome and other microbiome site signatures that is associated with our condition and may perhaps be a new frontier in understanding endometriosis. There are various pathways proposed, including altered immune function, the role in inflammation, and so much more that may explain this curious connection between the gut microbiome and endometriosis. While testing may not be the best use of your time, money, or energy on this path, focusing more on plant foods in your diet each day and week and basic self-care strategies sounds really boring and basic, but they're all important in improving your gut health. Want to learn more about nourishing your gut with endometriosis? My Nourishing Gut Health for Endometriosis Masterclass is on live Thursday, March 23rd, 7 p.m. Sydney, Melbourne time, but you can join anywhere in the world. Come learn some more about gut health and endo, this connection, understanding how to practically apply some of these nutrition tips and troubleshoot some of the common GIT concerns we see in endo warriors like bloating, constipation, diary and nausea too. Tickets are just 75 Aussie dollars and $10 will be donated to charity, the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia. Last year, we had almost 100 of you join us. So I cannot wait to see you all. And don't forget to tune in each week in March for more endometriosis content as part of our annual endometriosis mini series for Endo Awareness Month. Thank you so, so much for tuning into this episode. Don't forget to subscribe follow on your favorite podcasting platform. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It is one of the simplest, quickest, free ways you can support this podcast and it helps us reach more people and share it with a fellow Ender Warrior, your partner, a friend, family member, and I'll see you next week. Bye. Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast, acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connections to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to First Nation cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all First Nations people tuning in today. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation.